candor is okay. Getting it wrong, getting it right, it's okay. We're learning and growing. Welcome everyone to another episode of Famous Failures. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Amy Edmondson. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. She is best known for her pioneering work on psychological safety as well as failure. The topic of psychological safety recently gained widespread popular attention after a February 2016 New York Times Magazine article described psychological safety as the key factor in determining team performance at Google. Amy's new book, which is called The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth, is available on Amazon. There's a link to it in the show notes. The book offers a practical guide for organizations serious about success in the modern economy. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, one of the things I highly admire about Amy's research is how accessible it is. So I highly encourage you to check out the book, which is really a culmination of the advice that she has put together on how to promote psychological safety in the workplace. In the interview, Amy and I talk about a number of things. We begin with Amy's background and how an advice-seeking letter that Amy sent to the iconic American inventor Buckminster Fuller landed her a job as Bucky's chief engineer. How Amy then went from engineering to becoming a business school professor. We talk about what psychological safety is and why it's crucial to creativity and high performance. What factors set apart organizations that promote psychological safety from those that don't? And here we delve into the research that Amy conducted on medication errors at hospitals. We talk about how corporate leaders, and these are very practical strategies, how corporate leaders can foster an environment where employees are willing to openly share their mistakes and failures. We also talk about what we can learn from the organizational causes behind the 2003 Columbia Space Shuttle disaster, which Amy spent over two years studying. We wrap things up by talking about how teachers can promote psychological safety in the classroom. Before I play the interview, if you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter. It's called The Weekly Contrarian. It goes out to over 12,000 people every Thursday morning, and it shares an article that I wrote that week along with my recommendations for books, other articles, tools, really anything that challenges conventional wisdom and hopefully um, helps you look at the world a little differently. You can sign up for that in one of two ways. You can go to weeklycontrarian.com and just drop in your email address. Or you can text my first name, Ozan, that's O-Z-A-N, to 345-345 and sign up for the, the newsletter that way. And if you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook. It's called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amy Edmondson as much as I did. And thank you, as always, for listening. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, so, so happy to connect with you directly because I've been just deeply immersed in your research in relation to a book I'm currently writing, as I mentioned before we hit record here. So it's nice to, really nice to chat with you directly. I want to begin with a bit of background. When our mutual friend, Ralph Campbell, introduced us, he said, you have to ask her about working for Buckminster Fuller. (laughs) So for those who don't know, who was Buckminster Fuller and how did you end up working with him? Buckminster Fuller, I'm smiling ear to ear as I answered this. Buckminster Fuller was a great 
American inventor and visionary from the 20th century. He actually was born in the end of the 19th century in 1895 and was quite a, a wonderfully inventive and big-hearted thinker. He is best known for having invented the geodesic dome, which is a triangulated architectural structure that can be built at virtually unlimited dimensions with no interior supports. So that comes in handy for a variety of things that probably don't need to get into here. Uh, but Bucky was, in fact, vis-a-vis -vis this topic, quite an enthusiast about learning from mistakes and learning from failure and and would often claim that uh, the only reason he had been you know, successful or, or noteworthy at all was because of his enormous track record of, of making failures and uh, then learning from them. And to, to justify the notion of success, he had, I think, 25 U.S. patents, about the same number of books, 50 honorary doctorate degrees, and wow. much more. How did you end up working with him? When I was in college, I heard him speak and I was absolutely in, enthralled. His core message was our jobs as human beings is to use our big brains uh, to create a better world. And he had lots to say about that topic. It seemed reasonable to me. So I wrote him a letter. And to my real astonishment, he wrote me back. Uh, and more than wrote me back, he essentially offered me a job. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So I spent about three years, almost three years, just under three years, he called me his chief engineer. I was really his only engineer during those three years. <laughs> what were your responsibilities as his chief engineer? Well, mostly I was, I mean, I did some architectural drawings. I did a lot of fundamental calculations on the geodesic math, which with your background would probably seem fairly basic. It's really spherical trigonometry to try to um, find ways to have fewer different strut lengths for, for large and complex domes. So you went from working as the, the chief engineer for one of the, the iconic American inventors to then becoming a business school professor at Harvard Business School. <laughs> How did that transition happen? I'm sure it was over a long period of time. Yes, it was. And I know that doesn't sound very sensible or you know even feasible in a way. And so it is a circuitous path. What happened was after Bucky died, and he died at the age of 88, and he was um, he'd been, he was very young and vital seeming to me, and but he did die, so it came as somewhat of a shock. I did something strange. I decided to write a book about his mathematical work. Uh, many people thought that his own writings on the topic of his geometric insights were unreadable. Mm. They made sense to me, so I decided to make a kind of you know Bucky made easy book. Uh, I called it a fuller explanation. The subtitle is The Synergetic Geometry of Buckminster Fuller. And the, the reason that was sort of a strange thing to do was that I wasn't a writer. I didn't really have any way to pull that off, except that I thought it should be done. And fortunately for me, it all worked out. But, but in the process of writing and learning to write, how do you kind of convey things like this in, a, in a, both a clear and compelling way? I had to do a little bit of work to support myself, so I ended up teaching courses at different times, everything from freshman engineering um, for architecture students to algebra. When someone went on leave, I stepped in. And, you know, so I was, I was kind of teaching and writing is what I was doing for a couple of years. And 
in that process, it occurred to me that that's who I really was. I, you know, I wasn't an engineer, really. I was an educator. I loved the rhythm of writing and teaching and not, you know, just the balance. And yet it was beginning to dawn on me that I didn't know my field. And I, my field was not going to be engineering. It was not going to be architecture. And so when I was done with the book, I just started talking to people and, and saying, you know, learning more about what people do. I didn't know that much about the work world and what, what jobs might be available. And I ended up getting hired by an organization development consulting firm, essentially because I met the, the president and CEO at a talk I gave about Bucky out in Colorado. And he said, for no apparent reason, I'd like you to come work for me. And uh, so I, I then began this new journey, which was learning about organizations. And I realized what they had in common with Fuller's work was that it was systems thinking. Like it, it, you don't get very far just studying the elements. You need to understand how they connect together and relate together. And that's what tells you about the behavior of the system. And you know, Bucky was really a whole systems thinker. I learned slowly, but quite crisply, that people were really of interest to me. And that if there was anything I was probably going to be better, you know, better at than the average person. It was sort of understanding human beings and how they work in systems. And so I, I loved what I was doing in and out of companies, meeting wonderful people. And ultimately I felt, okay, this is a, this is a really good field, but I'm not well educated in it. I had sort of long ago engineering degree. I had no uh, business background, no psych background. So I decided to go back to school and I, I signed up, I ended up getting into a PhD program in organizational behavior, which was um, a very new and strange world. Academic research was a new and strange world for me. And again, it took a little while, but then I really took to it. And, and so then the natural path out of a PhD program in organizational behavior is into a faculty job in a professional school of some form or another. If I can add to that story, at least from my perspective, one of the things that struck me, having now read pretty much everything you've written on psychological safety and failure, is how well you are able to take these elusive concepts and translate them to a plain language, which I think much of academic writing lacks. And it's interesting that you mentioned the book you wrote, Full of Explanation, which essentially takes some of the elusive concepts that Bucky Fuller had talked about. And, and translating those into a more plain, simple language that, that audiences can understand. And perhaps you did that as well to some extent in the consulting work you did after you start working for Bucky and translating that systems thinking that Bucky talked about into a real world context. It's a very huge compliment. Thank you. So one of the fields, as I mentioned, that you recognize as a pioneer in is psychological safety. So I'd love to turn to that now. And I have to admit, when I first heard the term, and this was long before I read any of your research, it initially, at least for me, brought up images of people sort of gathered around in a conference room, holding hands and <laughs> singing Kumbaya. <laughs> Apologize for that. <laughs> but when I delved into your research, I realized how significant psychological safety is for a well-functioning institution. And so for those who might be tempted to dismiss the concept, can you please explain what psychological safety is and why it's so important? Absolutely. And yes, if I if I could uh, come up with a better term now, I would, but it's too late. I think you are not alone in, in finding the term. It doesn't immediately convey 
what it should. And so let me try to do that here. Psychological safety is the belief that this workplace is a place where I can bring my full self. And I I don't mean that in a kind of a spiritual way. I, I mean that literally I can ask questions. I can offer my ideas. I can speak up. I not only can speak up, I feel expected to do so. I feel that people want to hear what I have to say, whether it's right or wrong, uh, doesn't matter. So you could say psychological safety is the absence of, or at least the very low level of interpersonal fear, meaning I'm not tied up in knots about, oh, you might not like me, or you might not think well of me if I ask that question, or if I admit that error. In a workplace that lacks psychological safety, what kinds of consequences might follow? I mean, this might be intuitive, perhaps, but I think it's important to, to underscore if people aren't able to speak up when needed with relevant ideas, questions or concerns, what types of consequences might come about? The consequences, the undesired consequences come in two basic categories. One are lost opportunities. You know, it's the idea that doesn't get shared. It's the, you know, the innovation that doesn't happen. The customer whose needs don't get fully recognized because someone's voice doesn't get heard or expressed. It's very hard for us to know that we miss the boat on something because it's invisible. But still, of course, you can recognize over time that organizations where innovation isn't happening are going to ultimately get in trouble. The other kind of unwanted outcome is the failures or crises or accidents that didn't need to happen that happened because someone who saw something that could have helped us avert it didn't say anything. And those can be physical accidents or big business failures or even, you know, the kinds of business failures that we've read so much about recently where people just didn't speak up with what they knew. And it looked for all the world like the company was successful, but in fact, it wasn't an accurate portrayal. And one of the contexts in which you studied the consequences of, of psychological safety is is the hospital context, which I thought was was fascinating. And you talk about this at the at the beginning of your your TEDx talk, and we'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. I encourage everyone to to watch it. But perhaps you could speak to that a little bit as well. You, you started out by asking this question, do better hospital teams make fewer medication mistakes? What did you find? I found that it was a more complicated question to answer than I had anticipated. My priors were that the trained medical investigators who were kind of collecting the data, they were nurses, they were collecting the data from unit to unit or team to team and on errors, mistakes. And I sort of thought those data would be pretty objective and and well collected, well measured by them. And my part of the study was to use a a validated measure of team effectiveness and team coordination quality and so on. And I thought that it would be pretty straightforward to show that better teamwork was associated with fewer errors because of the handoffs in healthcare delivery in a hospital setting, right? It's not the case that there's sort of, you know, one clinician caring for one patient. Of course, we know that it's 24-7 operations, lots and lots of handoffs, lots and lots of specialists. So, you know, so I thought, well, gosh, you know, teamwork should really matter in terms of preventing error. And what I found instead, at first glance, it looked like the error data 
and the team survey data were in fact significantly correlated, which was true, but then I suddenly realized they were correlated in the wrong direction. And so that didn't strike me as right. So I started to think some more and and it suddenly occurred to me that maybe, maybe the better teams, according to my team survey, were more able and willing to talk about error. You know, maybe they, they kind of recognize that this is this is tough stuff, but there's a lot at stake, and it's really important that we roll up our sleeves and we come clean. We're, we talk about it. We find ways to get better every single day. And if that were true, then better teams would look like they were making more mistakes. But in fact, we wouldn't have a, a good measure of objective error rate. And that turned out to, uh, to be, I think, a pretty good description of what was happening. There are, of course, some errors that can't be hidden because really bad things happen and it's obvious and known to everyone. But there's an awful lot sort of right below the water level, if you will, where errors happened, but for whatever reason, either the patients fortunately didn't react to the error or it just wasn't a big enough reaction that anyone ever needed to know about it. So I had to say, well, wait a minute, why might it be the case that in some teams they're you know talking openly and others they really aren't? And and I started to think about, well, maybe they have different team climates, you know, that maybe in some places it's just easier. It feels right. And in others, it isn't. And I thought about my own work experiences and also the organizations where I had been as a consultant. And, and I realized, sure, there, there's often palpable differences across groups in the openness they feel and they express. And so that became my kind of new hypothesis and I had to work pretty hard after that insight to find ways to demonstrate that that indeed was a, a valid way to, to look at it. But from, from that point on, I started you know, finding ways to measure the interpersonal climate, which I later called psychological safety. I know it's not the best term, but the reason I ended up using it was that reviewers of the manuscript that I submitted on this study, it was actually a study in a manufacturing setting, but where I measured it on purpose rather than by accident, they suggested this term, and it turns out the term does have a, a history in the literature. Um, in the in the late 60s, some very important thinkers in my field, Ed Schein and Warren Bennis, talked about the need for psychological safety if people were to feel able to effectively engage in organizational change efforts. You know, they had to not be, uh, they had to feel safe if they were going to be willing to take the risks of change. So it's not not all that different from what I was talking about, except that I was looking very specifically at how different teams could have very different climates, even within the same organization. And if I can just underscore how important the term has become and how it's, I think, been accepted in the in, in various different industries, is I, I keep hearing when um, Astra Teller, who's the the captain of moonshots at Google X, which is his real title. Uh, and Google X is, is, is Google's moonshot factory. But he talks about the importance of psychological safety quite often in fostering innovation and, and creativity at Google X, which are so vital to what that organization does. Yes, I think I think that's right. And I've been actually quite thrilled that the term has gotten picked up. It's gotten picked up in healthcare. It's gotten picked up in at Google and in other highly innovative settings because People, I think people were just not, for, for many years, we were not really conscious of the fact that people could hold back, not only could, but would. We think of people as sort of rational creatures who will 
say what they're thinking or offer their ideas, but, but we're not really, we're, we're sort of, um, we're social creatures and we want people to think well of us and we will err on the side of silence when we're not sure. And so in a sense, it's our and our colleagues and our manager's job to make sure that we err on the side of voice instead. And so going back to the hospital study for a moment on that note, what set apart the better teams from the not so good ones? What types of variables or factors fostered psychological safety in the teams, in the better teams that you studied in that in that setting? Well, in that particular study, it really seemed to boil down to one thing, which was leadership, but not leadership at the at the top of the organization, right? Not not C level leadership, but rather leaders in the middle. And in the hospital setting, this is often the nurse manager for the nurses, the, the essentially the manager of the unit, you know, that the, a number of us work on this hospital unit, you know, on for, for patients with this kind of condition. And we have a, we have a nurse manager, or it might be in, for physicians, it might be the attending physician or the medical director of, a, of an ICU. So it's the proximal authority figure. It's the local leader. It's the person who we look to for cues about how to behave and how we're doing. And that person has a very oversized impact on the interpersonal climate. And what exactly were they doing to foster that climate? Were they leading by example? Were they encouraging the staff, the nurses to share their mistakes? What were they doing? All of the above. So yes, leading by example. And leading by example looks something like this. Humility to say the work we do is complex, uncertain, and customized. But think about it. Like each and every patient really is different. We are 24-7, right? It is so easy for things to go wrong. And so the most important thing that a, you know, that a great clinician can do is catch and correct it early. And so what, what, what's that leader doing? That leader is basically saying, this is hard. This is complex. It's the nature of the game. It's not your fault. This is the work we do. Ergo, the good people are the ones who speak up and speak up quickly, which is a total reframe from what's spontaneous. You know, we spontaneously think, oh, yeah, the good people are the ones who never make any mistakes or who, you know, look perfect all the time. And so these leaders would go out of their way to make sure we're on the same page in terms of appreciation for the challenge ahead. And then the, this, the other really important thing they did was they asked good questions. They would say things like, what are you seeing? You know, I, I wasn't on last night. What, what did you notice? What are you seeing? So they're kind of soliciting input. And it's very difficult to remain silent when a manager is saying, what are you seeing? You feel obligated to have something to offer. And so they're, in a sense, they're flipping on its head the natural inclination to stay silent by making that awkward by asking good questions. I don't know if this was in this particular study or a different one, but did the leaders themselves also share their own failures? Was that a part of it? It was not so much in that study because I didn't, I, it might be true, but I didn't have it in that study. But in other studies, it is the case that, you know, if you want, if you're a, a, a team leader, a boss of some kind, and you want the people who are working with you to be open about their mistakes or failures, you probably better go first. 
You know, it's it's you know, it's one thing to say, hey, we'd love to talk about mistakes around here. That's nice, but really, do I want to go first? I don't think so. <laughs> but you know, if if my if my manager has a sense of humor and says, wow, let me tell you about a time I messed up. I'm going to say, oh, that's what good looks like around here. You know, being being willing to be open about the fact that each and every one of us is a fallible human being. And aside from leadership, what other factors come into play in constructing psychological safety? And I know you discussed this at length in your newest book, which I encourage everyone to check out. Again, this will be a link in the show notes. It's called The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth. But if you can give us a flavor of perhaps one or two other variables that, that come into play, I think the listeners would appreciate it. Psychological safety is a little bit enabled by the presence of a really important goal or purpose. Right? So, Because really the dynamics of it are as follows. Impression management or the desire to look good will take the front seat naturally. But I can push it into the backseat when I've got something else on my mind. You know, imagine just as an extreme, the building catches on fire. I'm not going to worry about what I look like. We're getting out of this building, right? It just the impression management immediately takes a, a secondary role in my mind. So it is the case that when we have something, you know, I feel absolutely energized by and committed to the importance of the work we're doing that's going to help. That's going to help, you know, o- overcome and create some psychological safety for that helps me just jump in. Another thing is just frequent demonstrations of curiosity and interest in what's going on out there, what other people are seeing. It doesn't have to be a boss. I mean, anyone can ask questions. And when several people or, you know, a number of people are modeling that curiosity and that interest, we, we just are more willing to believe and experience the idea that candor is okay. Getting it wrong, getting it right, it's okay. We're learning and growing. It's absolutely the case that peers can be as important an influence on building psychological safety as bosses, or at least almost as important. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster, which you spent more than two years, if I recall correctly, studying. And just to give some background to the listeners, I'm sure you might be aware, but uh, in 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia blew up during re-entry into the atmosphere in a tragic accident. The shuttle had spent 16 days in space. During the launch, a large piece of foam had separated from the shuttle and struck its left wing, and that strike left a just a huge hole in the in the thermal protection system that was responsible for protecting the shuttle from the heat that builds up during re-entry. And and tragically, all seven astronauts on board the the shuttle were killed. So this wasn't a purely technical failure, you argue in your research. It was also an organizational one. What did you uncover during your research about the underlying organizational causes of the accident? There are accidents that happen, especially, I mean, we can immediately recognize that uh, space travel is quite a risky business and, and understand the astronauts certainly themselves all understood they were taking risks. So there will be malfunctions that happen that really come out of the blue. And by that, I mean, no one saw them coming. This wasn't one of those. This was what I call an ambiguous threat in that there was at least one, in this case, one and a small handful of people who were worried, right? Who, who thought this was a possibility 
but lacked confidence in the possibility and were more or less shut down in their efforts to ask questions and get more data. So what happened was on, as you said, on the launch day, a piece of, of, of foam, insulating foam, dislodged, separated, and did indeed hit the, the, the shuttle in a delicate position, the leading edge. However, if, if we'd known for sure that it happened, NASA would have taken it very seriously and it's at least possible that things could have been done to prevent the tragedy. The problem was that we didn't know it had happened. The The camera angle was such that it wasn't possible to see for sure what happened. The camera distance, it looks just what you see is a kind of grainy speck traveling across the video that may or may not have hit. It's terribly ambiguous. So a couple of engineers, and one in particular, Rodney Rocha, tried to get support for getting some images in space taken so that they could investigate whether or not there was a hole made. And those requests got shot down. And then because, not because these are bad people at all, but because people were highly confident, especially after 126 or so successful missions, and it looked, it was a sunny day, it looked like a successful launch. People were were highly convinced that all was well and didn't see any reason to cry wolf or get all upset about it. And and so in a crucial meeting on day eight of the 16-day mission, when the it was the only time that the mission management team agenda had the foam strike issue, the you know, possible foam strike issue on the formal agenda. And in that meeting, Rodney remained silent and he felt very much that his voice wasn't welcome. Not in a you know, angry way, just just in an appropriateness way. He just felt that he tried, but wasn't what probably was wrong anyway. He, you know, he didn't have the confidence that, oh, this is a, this is certainly a an accident waiting to happen. Not at all. He just had this gnawing sense that it could have happened. So his his decision to remain silent in that moment, which I think is very understandable, very human, led the issue to no longer get any attention for the next eight days and then this tragic event to happen. And so it is easy to describe this story as one in which psychological safety was absent. I think that's true in the mission management team and in the organization more generally. And there are a number of factors that contributed to that. There is the management style of the team leader who was was crisp and, and, and efficient and not not stopping, not pausing, not what are we missing, what are you seeing? what's on your mind. Uh, there's the organizational kind of bureaucracy and, and protocol that makes it hard to kind of bypass and, and find other ways to get curious and get data. And then there's, of course, human cognitive biases that lead us to be prone to the confirmation bias, to the recency bias. We did so many, 17 years of purely successful missions and so on and so forth. So I think of this as a preventable tragedy. If psychological safety had been very high, I think we'd have nothing to lose by saying, yeah, but what if? And what could we do to find out for sure? And then I think if we had done some of those things, it would have been possible to realize the flight was doomed if it was going to come home that day without some kind of repair or some other plan B. One of the interesting things is it appeared to me that there was a disconnect between the management and the and the engineers, because the engineers, including Rodney Rocha, were raising their hand and saying, essentially, look, our intuition is that 
this was a particularly bad strike and we should at least investigate. But the management sort of shifted the burden to the engineers to prove that something was wrong, but then also disabled them from getting any, any sort of evidence to actually to show that something was wrong. And the management itself, they're also engineers by training. Right. And, and yet once they're in the management role or over time in the management role, they begin to think like managers, um, which is not a bad thing, obviously, in its own right. And in this case, how managers thought, which is not so atypical, was in terms of budgets, timelines, schedules, deadlines, uh, not in terms of engineering problems to be solved or data to be collected. And it's a very different mindset. And so you're absolutely right. They were thinking about it differently and they were quite blinded by the apparent need to stay on schedule. How do you go about facilitating psychological safety in the classroom and encouraging students to raise their hands, to challenge you, to come forward with crazy sounding ideas? The reason I ask that is, and this is purely anecdotal, but I feel like this is getting worse and worse every year. Students are really afraid of how they look like in front of their classmates. Many of them I find to be inconsolable if they get anything less than an A minus. Or, you know, I've had students come up to me and say, I'm not going to apply for this job because I may not get it. Oh, yes, this has happened more than once. <laughs> so I wonder what your experience is with with this at Harvard Business School and, and how you approach creating an environment of psychological safety in the classroom. I do think about it a lot, of course. And it's a combination of sort of how I try to show up and what I do and say. Right? So how do I show up? I want to be warm. You know, I don't, I don't want to be intimidating. I want to be warm. But I want to set, and I do, very high standards. Right? I want the explicit opportunity for students to be a place where they can learn. So I often say things like, in these four walls, make mistakes. Right? Because nothing bad will happen if you make them here. The goal is to learn as much as we can here to be more effective out there later. You have to be explicit about this as a learning task. And a learning task, you are definitely not learning if you never get anything wrong. That's performing, right? So this is a learning task, not a performing test. So I want to be warm. I want to set the, I want to set the context to be one where we're allowed to take risks here. And in fact, it's our job to take risks here. So that's one. It's kind of the how I show up in the context. And then the other is how I ask questions and how I respond to the answers. So I believe that the, the act of asking questions can be an act that creates psychological safety because it creates a little platform, a little opportunity for a response. And in fact, if, if I'm doing my job right when I'm asking a question, it should feel less safe to stay mute than to respond. And hopefully you'll be willing to take, you know, to take some risks and, and not just stick with safe answers because it actually makes the, makes the uh, experience more interesting for other people. Right? So I often will say that a high quality comment in this classroom is not one that's necessarily right, gets the right answer, the right number. A high quality comment is one that promotes other students' learning. Right? So if you get it wrong in an interesting way, that's generally a pretty useful thing for other students learning. You know, if you get it right in a way that nobody can follow what you just said or how you got there, that's like not a good comment. 
Which if you're going to get it right, you better be very clear and transparent about the thinking process that got you there. So others are learning from, from what you say. I have a colleague, a wonderful colleague who says, how we teach is what we teach. And I think what we're trying to do is teach the art of asking questions, the art of staying curious, the art of critical thinking. Like you don't just take everything at face value. In fact, you don't even think there's a right answer and a wrong answer. You think there are better and worse processes to arrive at solutions. Inputs over outputs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, if, if something is worthy, it's probably, rel- you know, meaning a worthy topic, it's probably, there's some uncertainty there. There's better and worse answers, but they're not really necessarily right answers. Well, Amy, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, I'm sure we can talk for hour, hours and hours about your research, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you for joining us, for sharing your research with, with the audience here. I wish more academics did what you do on a daily basis, which is to, to write in a, you know, an accessible language and actually take the time to, to share your academic insights with popular audiences. So I really appreciate that and, and thank you for doing that. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hi everyone, thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.